Oh my god, did you see the traffic coming in here today? I feel like we had to make this relevant to our discussion. You're, right. you're not okay, acknowledging okay, okay. You're the importance right, of right. our discussion. This is my first time, no, I'm dude. offended. I'm triggered by the fact <laughs> I, that just, you I'm really upset don't right now. see how important this conversation God damn and the conversation it, we were on earlier on. Is it that like what I was saying wasn't important enough dude, to you? you just don't is listen. It? You know, <laughs> I just don't feel like you appreciate me. You know what I mean? And this I think appreciate like every day on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, hustlers? Welcome to the Matt Brown Show. Communication. Since the advent of social media, the way that we communicate has fundamentally changed, both in society and in the context of business. When Mike Stockport co-founded Cerebra Communications, he challenged what communications could represent for brands right across Africa. Over the course of 14 years, Cerebra became an award-winning social media communications agency that were the first to reimagine what a social enterprise could be. This caught the attention of WPP, one of the world's largest advertising conglomerates who acquired Cerebra for an untold sum. In this episode, Mike and I explore how social media communications has changed the face of business, how entrepreneurs can scale their startups and their businesses through strategic partnerships, and what he has learned in the process of selling Cerebra to WPP. So without further ado, enter Mike Stopforth. Cool, guys. So welcome back to another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. I have none other than the infamous Mike Stopforth. The, can I even say what your title is now? What are you now? The former CEO of Cerebra. The former now CEO. unemployed. Yeah. Now unemployed, but also acting as chairman, right, of the board? Something like yeah. That? yeah, technically okay. still a shareholder, um, still involved uh, with the business in an advisory capacity, and yeah, but no longer operational. Okay, cool. So um, anyone that's an entrepreneur, many um, sort of clients that I've worked with before from banks to major telcos will know who you are. They'll very, you know, be very affair with Cerebra. Um, as a as a social media communications agency, <clears throat> which you founded with Craig Rodney way back when? So started the business in uh, 2005, 2006, and then uh, merged with Craig's business in 2011 and bought by WPP 2013. Okay, cool. So that's quite a, quite a story. Um, so what is the headline for you, though? I mean, when you cast your mind back, what is that? 13, 14 years. Mm. Um, when you cast your mind back, like what, what's the headline? narrative and story that you that you want our listeners and viewers to know about yeah sure so i think these things are always easier to to formulate in retrospect right rather than up front and um to to be completely honest i think uh could have been far more intentional and deliberate about how we built that business but got very lucky and we were very fortunate along the way and i think our timing was really good and i think uh in many ways we enjoyed a degree of first mover advantage um i I think it's been a story of, of evolution. It's been a story of a kind of a, a couple of different challenges and those have been great challenges. I mean, it's not, it's not easy running a business and it's sometimes harder running a business here in, in Johannesburg and in South Africa. But yeah, o- overall, just a cool, cool journey, man. Yeah. It is way fucking harder <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in what? South Africa. Let's be honest. No, I don't know. I've I, been talking no. a lot about identity politics and stuff like that and the kind of red tape that, you know, as founder entrepreneurs we that we have to deal with. Just it's the reality of the situation. And to be fair, you've actually somehow going back to two thousand five, yes, you were lucky, stop fourth law we need to talk about. He who puts his hand up first is what is that? The expert. 
was automatically <laughs> accredited as thing. the expert. <laughs> That's basically named after you because you went, hey, we are the social media experts. Like the internet had sex, Facebook happened, and brands went, holy shit, we can reach our markets here, and what does it all mean? And you guys really were the custodians of that whole change and evolution of brand communications. Yeah. Going back to my point around identity politics, Am I smoking my socks? Everybody that uh, you know, I speak to on a daily basis shares my frustration. What's your view? So we probably need a whole another podcast just to get through that topic. It's an enormous topic, but my view is that um, I think I think this is an extraordinary place with some really interesting tensions and tensions either push people to the fringes and and into their own tribes or they smush people together in the middle where we create really interesting and innovative and new solutions and i think south africa's shown us time and time again that despite um the handicap of our past and despite the challenges that we face right now which are numerous and complex right um the 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 opportunity in this country, in the city right now, I think is extraordinary, especially for people that have a degree of resilience and a willingness to engage with that complexity rather than ignore it. I, I really do think that that's the problem we have right now is that our brains want to save calories, right? We want to go to the simplest solution possible and the, the simplest explanation possible. But we are in a, we, we live in a complex place with complex stuff inherent to it. I think that, uh, my view politically is because I, um, because I grew up in a relatively pr- privileged scenario and was a uh, party to education that some of my peers uh, in Joburg might not have been at the same time, I, I probably enjoyed a fair amount of advantage up front. But that privilege for me is a little bit like an epidermal trust fund, right? It's not a bad thing. It's not something I'm ashamed of. It, it, that trust fund is meted out differently to different people in different ways. What's important is what you do with it, right? And I think denying it is not a useful uh, way forward. Uh, embracing it and rather trying to find ways to add value back to the context that I've been so fortunate to work in, that's an interesting discussion for me. But that's a lot of thoughts in a very small uh, <laughs> time frame. Well, well, well. Let's we can park that and come back to it a bit later in the show. But I want to kind of focus on your story, which is which is arguably one of the most compelling that you'll find here when you think about what's happened in the communications landscape. You've got, you know, these big agency networks: TBWA, WPP, <coughs> Ogilvy, etc. Ogilvy bought Glue. WPP bought like. Pfft, how, God knows how many communications agencies. Uh, like it, it sounds more than they actually were, but you know these are the biggest in a particular play. Um, and so when you when you look at all of that movement and the liquid the liquidity around acquisitions and stuff, and everybody scrambling to get market share and to be able to protect that market share through IP and knowledge capital that was fundamentally built by entrepreneurs such as yourself and Craig. Um, what was that journey like for you? Because here you are, there is no handbook. Right, uh, social media is new for you and yeah. for the brands that are trying to adopt this new sort of communications paradigm. Um, what did you or how did you approach developing, like you know, IP and knowledge capital in that space? Yeah, so, so I was le- listening to a um, a Reed Hoffman podcast that Masters of Scale thing, which I really struggle to listen to because it's 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 painful. Ding dong, hello. <laughs> Very, very painful. But, but there, there was an interesting discussion about this kind of learned experience and learned wisdom in industries and how you get told certain things about how an industry should work based on the decades of, of precedent before that. But, um, I think one of our, our distinct advantages building an ad 
agency in South Africa at the time where we built it was that none of us had worked in an ad agency. So um, I think not knowing how to build an ad, ad agency, weirdly enough, worked more for me in that context than against us. Um, we focused a lot on trying to specialize rather than diversify and do everything. We didn't want to solve every problem clients had. We wanted to solve one really well. That worked for us. We wanted to be sure that we could uh, stand up in terms of our IP and our experience and our thought leadership with the very best in the world and in South Africa. So we landed up comparing ourselves to the likes of Forrester and Gartner and Deloitte and Accenture, which I think was a really good step because it got us thinking about what it meant to be a consultant and business partner for our clients. We didn't always get that right, but we we tried. And uh, the combination of those two things, I think, kind of helped us stay apart from some of the um, – I mean, advertising can be a messy space and it can be a messy industry. And I don't think we as ad people have done, um, done ourselves many favors in that regard. Um, but I do think that, that, you know, we, we also benefited from being part of that space and we, we really did benefit from the consolidation that you mentioned earlier on. So, I mean, we wouldn't have done the deal we did if it weren't for all of that consolidation and WPP and publicists and the other networks vying for market share through acquisition. So we got super lucky there and, and I'm really grateful for that. And I learned a fortune through that experience. Um, that's like a proper, you know, kind of accelerated PhD in corporate finance negotiation and deal making. Cause yeah, there's no, there's no other way to learn that stuff than to be in the middle of it. Yeah. And I'm going to do a deep dive with you on that. Cause I think there's just so much for us to well, share. That's basically <laughs> all I know about that. So we can't, that, that, yeah, yeah. Rubbish, that's all rubbish. I've got. Yeah. It's a very you. small PhD. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a like book. a week long. It's yeah. a one page book. That's all I've got. <laughs> Uh, it's cool. important. It, it is. It is very important. Lessons very important. learned. It is lessons learned. It is lessons learned. So um, it's interesting that you mentioned that you compared yourself to consulting firms and not ad agencies. When in effect, that's kind of what you're building. I mean, when you go, when you cast your mind back, did you, did you, were you clear that this is the kind of business that we were building, or were you kind of like what we're doing here, which is kind of you know failing forward as we go and and finding where the liquidity is for this new thing that the broader market is actually moving towards. So I'm going to speak a lot about tensions today. It's my new favorite topic. And, and so, but this was one of them, right? And, and I think from, from the get go, this is one of my earliest memories of building Cerebra was wanting to resist calling it an agency because I didn't want to be associated with that billing model or the kind of dysfunction inherent to the pitching process and some of the, um, some of the, uh, the, the inherent kind of, um, dysfunction in, in client and agency relationships, some of the stuff I'd seen and didn't necessarily want to participate. And of course, that's not the entire story, but some of it's like that. Um, and so I really wanted to resist it and I failed dismally. I was like, I was like, Cerebral will be a firm. <laughs> Cerebral will be a, you know, a, a consultancy. And I, I wanted to avoid, but we were an agency and we were grabbing low hanging fruit and we were hiring people from that industry. And so the tension was between trying to think like a consulting business and then operationalize and execute like an agency. And I believe that that's still the way we work. The, the fact that we published so much IP, the fact that we did, we did as much research as we did, um, the fact that we sit at the level in the organization that we do at critical times for our clients. It wasn't difficult for us to get a seat around the highest table in the business, especially when that business felt under duress in, in the social media space, which seems to happen almost on a weekly basis. Um, that, that stuff helped. Uh, I think edify the thinking that we were more than just 
a production house that was pumping out banner ads, you know? Um, yeah. So how does a, how does a startup essentially, um, or maybe whatever word you want to describe it, but essentially, you know, you're kind of looking for that, that space that you, that you own outright. I mean, what were the steps that you, that you undertook or that you executed on that, you know, effectively got you to the seat at, or a seat at the right tables? Because it's kind of like, well, I mean, were you, were you just first? Was that as, was that as simple as it was? Or was there a more strategic agenda that you were pushing? Were you working with media in different ways? Like, what was the process that got you to, the tables where you needed to be in order to have discussions that a consultant would actually have, which is a sort of like say, saying, well, how do you enable the social enterprise is very different to how do I buy a Facebook ad? Sure. And, and to this day, we still don't do media or oh, they just still don't do media. Um, we focused on answering those questions, organizational questions, strategy questions, um, workflow questions. Um, and those were, those were, those were, I, I felt more important to our clients at that point in time than, how much do we put behind this boosted post? And I felt like those were questions that we were better qualified to answer anyway. So, so I think the answer to your question of how do you, what advice would I give to a startup around this is, is what do you know something about? Okay. And what do people know a lot of? All right. And then how do you establish a tension between solving that one problem and meeting the client where they're at? And that's a difficult thing to do because you constantly vie between the two, right? Um, uh, many startups or entrepreneurs listening will know that, that it's really tough to say no to work, uh, especially at the beginning part of, of, uh, you know, your genesis as a business. But you'll know just how important it is to learn to say no to work and, and even work that sounds easy and, and really profitable. Um, the, the challenge of sticking to the things that you know best and do well is one worth engaging, I think. Um, unless of course you want to be all things to all people all the time, in which case just do that very well. But I, that's not my experience. That hasn't been something I was ever very good at. Yeah. I find startups have to shovel a lot of shit. Um, and I think that's because you have to say yes to everything. You don't have the luxury of saying no necessarily. Yeah, I think it depends takes, on it, the funding model. It and, does, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's where you are on your roadmap, right? So, but if you, if you don't have runway, if you don't have, you know, established portfolio of clients, it's very hard just to go, well, you know, I'm going to define my business by, <laughs> by saying no to this cash. Um, and so that's the, that's the dichotomy, right? Of tension that you, that you were describing. Yeah. Um, but having said that, if you think about social media back then, it's it kind of feels to me, and, and I'm and I'm and I'm just guessing here, but it kind of my sense would be that it was like it's like saying, well, how do you disrupt? You know what I mean? It's like having one of those conversations that's on the periphery of what the BAU mandate is of the business, right? And then you're going, hey, but this Facebook thing's happening. We now have like, I mean, I, I'm imagining you you had to report daily, and you were releasing data, going, actually, you know what? There there are now. 3 million active users on Facebook. And then three months later, they were now 6 million in order to substantiate the business uh, logic, essentially in business case for moving on to social media. Painful, right? Um, and yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not so, sh- I'm not even sure we were that, that deliberate about it. Um, I, I think we were super like, again, I'm going to say that a lot as well. And I mean it, I'm not being, I'm not trying to be humble. I think it's the absolute truth. Like we could argue that, um, and this is me kind of wearing my, my puritanical social media advocacy hat, but I'm not sure there's anything that's happened to business or society or politics or religion or economies that has been as big as what we've done in the last 15 years through social with this idea of making the unpublished published and all of the things that go with that, including 
the ability to buy democracies and yeah, you know, we could again we can have a whole nother podcast. I'm not sure we've done anything that big since I don't know, since the printing press when we made the illiterate literate and sparked an industrial revolution, right? Um I, I think that I think that we will only fully appreciate what we made and what we did maybe 50 years from now when we look back and go, holy shit, we, <laughs> we should have thought that through. Um, but I, I think it's a pretty big deal. And I think we were just lucky that we were the people that were trying to be authoritative on that topic. Mm. Now, I might be overstating that and happy to be wrong on that, but I really think it was a big deal. And I think people felt that mm. and, but didn't necessarily know how to articulate it. And we were articulating it just slightly better than anybody else. Mm. He was your first client. Like your first big win. Yeah. So our first significant client was South African breweries. Um, and it had nothing to do with their brands. They have a, probably still have a management development program, which is essentially an accelerated internal MBA for the cream of the crop within the business. And it was a program that happened offsite, uh, for eight weeks where the guys would travel there and, and be a part of this really beautiful curated fast track program. And we were asked to build a blog back then uh that was a secure blog that those people could use to post information on and share ideas on and communicate on essentially an early version of a yammer or a um a facebook workplace or salesforce chat or any one of those this is like so 2006 was, eh? yeah Roughly. 2006 yeah um and then reasonably quickly followed by that uh work with Toyota and Samsung and those were uh, and and Vodacom Vodacom was the business i think it's fair to say we built our our capability around from their first like and their first fan their first complaint their first compliment all the way through to to where they are today yeah i've seen uh some pretty compelling testimonials just i can't even remember where i read this i think it must have been one something that was published or whatever but it was from a vertical executive can't recall the name and they were just singing your praises in the sense of like something went really wrong to your earlier points around shit happens on social media on a daily if not weekly basis um and you guys were like literally in the trenches with your clients slash stakeholders helping manage that brand uh, slash PR issue, yeah. uh, which is which I thought was really awesome. It's the best kind of like testimonial you can possibly get. What I did find interesting though about that is the concept of partnerships because I find the agency client model, and this has been discussed numerous times in this show, and it's largely published, but it's basically it's broken, right? The underlying business model for agencies arguably is broken, um, and so partnerships becomes far more compelling strategy in order to grow one's business. And if Vodacom really was the thing that you kind of hang your hat on, even looking back on Cerebra's journey to date, um, <clears throat> partnerships and the way that you treat your clients, it's not a client agency thing. It's actually, hang on guys, we're partners in this. What have you learned about partnerships and how have you leveraged strategic partnerships to grow the Cerebra brand? So what, in other words, post you had pro like sort of product market fit and you were the guys having the right discussions at the table to scale that growth, how did you leverage partnerships? Yeah, so it's a great question. And it's a big question because I guess there's different categories of partnership, right? There's the partnership that we had with our clients on that journey. There's partnerships that I had with people that we joined forces with or uh, aligned with. Um, there's partnerships that we have with our staff, kind of this, you know, this, this fulfillment dynamic between the two, you know, I, we're going to, we're going to make you happy, but it's a byproduct of making profit. And we're only going to make a profit as a byproduct of making you happy, you know, but a bit of a, this glorious chicken and egg thing, you know, um, there, there were partnerships that we had with the people who uh, bought our business. Um, and that was a, a new lesson in partnership for me, which is, you know, kind of a very different power dynamic. But I think that would be the thing I would 
talk about is the the nature of power in relationships and how quickly you pick up on that and how important it is to assess the way that you behave when you're afforded power in a relationship. So we we felt like we had the best the best relationships with clients where there was a really even power dynamic. And maybe we were lucky because perhaps if we didn't have the passwords to their social media accounts, that wouldn't have always been there. There was a sense that they were trusting us with something very, very fragile and very important and very critical to them. And risky. And risky. Mm. And and in turn, we, we were trusting them with paying us on time, being amenable with the terms. And it took us a long time to get that dynamic right. It didn't always work. And we had some really dysfunctional partnerships that we walked away from and and quite publicly. And those were those were tough to do. It was tough to walk away from revenue. But I like I never regretted that. Mm. Never regretted walking away from an account. I love what you've just said because I literally spend most of my morning just phoning people in my network because you know we've, we've been going through the similar sort of thing and kind of experiencing you know because you have clients and they might be right but they might not be right for you and again going back to your point around startups having to say yes to everything in the pursuit of profit what inevitably happens is you take clients on board that aren't actually right for your business yeah so can you walk us through an example where you actually had to leave or walk away from a relationship and what did you learn from that process what were some of the downsides yeah so i think we worked with a client where there was quite a significant cultural misalignment. And when I say cultural misalignment, I believe culture is all about values. And so this was a client that believed that they wanted experts, but experts that would act like a sweatshop. So they wanted the best of breed in the industry, but they didn't want to pay for any of that. And they didn't really understand the role that they played in getting the results that they wanted out of that. And the way that that manifested was in uh, not paying for invoices, or looking for excuses not to pay for invoices. So when you actively try and <laughs> there's a knowing glance across the room, um, the, the maltreatment of staff, that's a big one for me. Um, like that's a no go. Like mm. I, I, I had some very unpleasant conversations with clients when I felt like they were treating my staff poorly. Uh, it's that like whole skivvies. dynamic of I'll, I'll walk out of a business meeting in a restaurant if somebody treats the waiter like shit. Like I'm not okay with that. That's mm. that's like a fundamental prerequisite for character evaluation. You know, yeah, if you can't, like, yeah, I think I think character is how you treat the people you have power over. Mm. That's it, right? Um, and clients that didn't get that and appreciate that, knowing that they had a degree of influence over our, uh, and then we had other clients that were the complete opposite of that. Um, uh, if I think of the partnership as an example that we built up with uh, people like Lana from Vodacom, who you'll, I'm sure, know and yeah. who just, you know, not n- in no way, shape or form, uh, a, a pushover or, a, and I mean, she won't mind me saying this. Lana is, is one of the, the most powerful, knowledgeable, um, uncompromising clients I've ever worked with. Ball breaker. Well, no, I don't know if I'd use that term. Why not? <laughs> but, because, um, uh, but she, she is, She's compelling in her understanding of the industry and what she wants, but uncompromising in her attempts to find shared value, right? Mm. You win, I win, mm. the brand wins, we all win, you know, and that's rare. That's really difficult to find. That doesn't, mm. it's not always easy. Mm. God, you have lots of debates and arguments and, and, you know, good negotiations, but, but, but at the end, you, you come out with something that's far more valuable than just a couple of good pieces of work and campaigns, you know? This concept of power in any service provider part slash partner client relationship is a very interesting one. Yeah. <clears throat> because so 
so let me go here. How do you demonstrate? There's a couple of dynamics to this question. So one, how do you demonstrate value in such a manner that a client is prepared to do what Lana does? In other words, holy shit, Cerebra are doing some amazing work. The thinking is really fantastic. I can see this changing the game, not just for the business that I work for, but also the career that I'm trying to build. And then because of that, I'm prepared to invest in you <clears throat> and your business. Shared value, uncompromising. Here's how I operate. You get you get on the same page around that shit and you do amazing work and you win countless awards and you build a very big business. <laughs> yeah. That's the dream. Yeah. But inevitably what 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 I've learned um, is that in some instances that's not and I suppose what you said was actually is quite rare. But how does one go about making sure that as a result of creating value for a client, that that client will uh, you know sort of you know, create a reciprocal value exchange for you and not fucking fight you on, on invoices. Not, you know what I mean? When's the last time you <clears throat> bought something without looking at the price tag? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. When was the last thing I did? I did every week. Okay, why? Uh, because I find value in that, or okay. in whatever it might so, be. So price is an issue when value is in question. Yeah, like there's uh, whey protein there. I don't look at the price. That's, that's what I need. It's the most boiky example you could have know, possibly come up with. But it's sitting there. It's right in my compelling view. compelling and it's, yeah, it's very okay. well done. I thought you'd so, go with like a t-shirt. Or so, the okay, so cameras the for the… Fucking whey protein. Uh, my fuck, uh, <coughs> and my bro. Hey, don't talk about my protein like that, brother. Um, That's why you cut like that. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, okay. I know. I put, put you into the gym this morning, my man. But um, but no, but it's the same thing with cameras. It's the same thing with lighting. It's yeah. like, I don't care. I yeah. need it. So something about that product or that service has established enough of a differentiation in your mind from its competitors or from the other options that were available for you to not ask a question about whether or not you can save 10 bucks on it or if you can get a discount where you were prepared to pay the price because you felt that the intrinsic value was never in question, right? So the big question we had to ask ourselves was, could we do that if we're an agency, if we're you know, in a very busy space with a lot of competitors? And, and I think that was one of the reasons why we try to be specialists. And that was one of the reasons why we tried to say things about our space that other people couldn't say because they hadn't spent that amount of time working on it and experimenting with it and digging into it. Like that's, that stuff's hard, man. Like it's nothing, nothing really worthwhile is ever easy. Um, and we, we chose a really tough path there. And that sounds super sanctimonious and it, and po possibly even arrogant, but that's why I think clients 
looked at us and said, um, they weren't comparing us with just another social media quote. They were going, what would I have to do to get the same level of expertise? What would I have to do to feel the same level of security if we ever land up in a massive crisis? Like if you can figure out a way to help a corporate brand avoid embarrassment, you write your own checks. Like it's the most powerful force in the world. Um, yeah. And so, so I think we, we learned, we learned one or two things on that, that path and didn't always get that right. And there were certainly engagements where we had with the client went, your social media thing is 50 Rand and their social media thing is 20 Rand. How could you possibly, you know, how, this is daylight robbery. And that was fine. We hadn't done a good enough job of communicating our value or demonstrating the value, but that was always on me. Like that was, that was my problem, not the client's problem. If I couldn't convince them of that, that was my fault, not their fault. See, I agree with you and I don't agree with you because I think when you're producing work, right, and you've got, <clears throat> you know, you've got demonstrable proof that the work that you've done generates returns on a global stage. Yeah. And despite that, you're still being questioned. Yeah. What do you do in that situation? And, and this is really important for me because, uh, again, spilling this, this conversation is coming up, but, um, but it's like… It's almost like before you actually do any work with a client, you need to be interviewing them and actually saying, you know, answer these like five questions or whatever. And is this actually a client that we feel that we can work for or with? Do you know what I mean? Like, for instance, um, uh, you know, a little thing. Are you, if, if we do decide to work with you, are you prepared to give us an exclusive on your business? If no, why? Well, we don't feel that, you know, all service providers are a commodity, but we're a price. And then suddenly it's like, well, actually, hey, if you're prepared, if your whole, your whole deal is about paying on price and less value, who really cares, you know, content, content, whatever the case is, or social media, social media, this a bazillion social media agencies, well, then actually, you know, they're not, they're, not, they're not the right client for you. Well, that might be the answer, is that they're not the right client for you. Not every client is the right client, and especially in the type of business that you and I are were in you you do need a degree of relationship and understanding and compromise and negotiation it's a, it's a it's all about that it's all about your ability to 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 make that person look good in their context to help them advance their careers while they help you advance yours there's lots of dynamics at play there it's obviously not as simple as the t-shirt example i used earlier on but i think the the underlying truth is still there that there, there is when I ask the question around what I'm prepared to pay, the value is intrinsic. It's, it's apparent. It's clear. And some of that just has to be the way sometimes the way that we, we started talking about Cerebra in that way. Loving this fly. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we started talking about Cerebra as our, our job is to make sure you never get embarrassed online. Was that your deal? Like that was your, that was what I used them. to open up pitches with. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting because I never thought about what you guys did from a PR perspective as being the key point of leverage. Yeah. Having heard you say it now, it actually makes perfect sense in hindsight. Well, the uh, other <coughs> options were we make lots more content mm. or we'll give you a good to average chance of winning a better award. Mm. We'll upgrade you from a bronze to a silver. We'll get you to a million likes faster than your competitors. Yeah. But you watch how quickly an exco can convene around a social media crisis and oh, yeah. you realize that's the, that's where the truth is. That's where the power is, right? Yeah. And I suppose the bigger the, the bigger the clients, shareholders and stuff like that, the bigger the risk, right? So yeah. the more value you have intrinsically, which is interesting. But what you guys did really, really well, and I've heard this from many uh, other entrepreneurs that I know, Mutual friends of ours, Rich Marlin, Brains, etc., is that you guys built an incredible brand. 
uh, Cerebra was the brand. Um, and uh, I'm probably speaking out of context here, but you know the the weight of the brand played a big role in the valuation that you got when eventually when you sold. Obviously, there's other components to that. Um, but um, brand building. Mm. Um, what have you learned about building brands, not client brands, your brands? Yeah. So I think it's easy to build a brand when you're doing something specific, right? So I'm not saying it's impossible to build a brand when you're doing lots of things, but it was easier for us because we were known as the social media experts and, and that helped a great deal. I think it's easier to build a brand when your staff believe the things that you pretend your brand is are actually the truth because they're, they're your most powerful advocates, right? Those guys are talking about their experiences of working there at clients, to other agency people, uh, at a bri, at home, um, to their families, online sometimes. That's that's the reality. I mean, I always used to say, if you want to know what Cerebra is like, ask people that have left it. Like, that's the litmus test, right? Um, is what people will say about you after they've left the business. Um and then I guess the, the third thing was making sure we weren't completely catastrophically shit when we dealt with clients. Like, that's quite important as well. So, you know, I, I think... Um, yeah, well, that's my rule. Rule number is, 13 on the studio rules. Whatever you do, don't be shit. Yeah, attempt, attempt at all costs not to be cuck. Um, Chris, you know, open that door for me, bud. So, so I think, I, I, I mean, obviously that's... But that's the most obvious one is do what you say you'll do... Um, you know, uh, under promise and over deliver, uh, things that are so obvious, but really counterintuitive when you're scrambling to, to win business and, and, and build a business. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, from a brand perspective, and this is again what we used to do for our clients, the, the gap between what you say you are and what you really are. That's, that's how good or shit your brand is. <laughs> like that, you know, if you are just who you say you'll be, there, even if you're really bad, at least you're consistently bad. <laughs> I think that's more important than pretending you'll be good and then being bad. Um, yeah, yeah. Personal branding. You also built a huge personal brand. <clears throat> if uh, if I I'm not say mistaken, a huge one. Well, more let's just say in the social media one. space, yeah. it was it was well known. Put it that way. Thanks, Matt. That's well done. Super kind of Hats you. Hats off to you, mate. Thank you. <laughs> um, but there's a big relationship between building a company brand, a business brand versus and the role that your personal brand plays in that, you know, that approach. Um, what did you do in order to build your personal brand? What advice can you share with other entrepreneurs who potentially are ignoring building their personal brand? Cause they ha- they are fearful. Yeah. Um, fearful so, of being judged or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I, wanna, I just want to, like, I want to also say it's hugely risky. Um, what, personal for two for two reasons. So personal branding. Yeah, but like anything that's great, it's also risky, right? Like most okay, things yeah. that are that are that are really cool and really powerful can also be really risky and really dangerous. So one of the reasons is that if you are building for sale, you will almost always be part of the deal, right? So it's very difficult if you are intending at any point to sell your business to separate. At that point in time, your brand and your business's brand are often like kind of you blended two pieces of putty together. Now you've got to try and take the blue putty out of the white. It's just impossible, right? They are the same and that's going to cause some pain. So that's the one threat, right? The other threat is that you're an individual with stuff, right? So like, for example, I might express a view online that is hurtful to staff, clients or the broader. I mean, that's obviously a a very superficial example because not everything that is said and done on Twitter and Facebook should, should have as monumental an impact on the world as I think it does. Um, but the point remains that I like 
there, there comes a point where what Cerebra is and who I am get further and further apart. And that's part of, part of acknowledging the, the, the elements that I brought to it that were useful and then codifying that and making sure those are embedded either in a, a set of values or a process or a system or a way of doing things or a, a type of product or whatever it might be. And then allowing Cerebra creating the space for that to happen to redefine some of those things and make it their own and develop their own stories and their own products and their own processes and their own values. And the meeting place between those two things is then its own thing. Then it's, then it's that thing. And then I kind of almost become subject to that thing. And my job is to support and amplify and illuminate that. So I think we got to that point in many ways. Um, and, oh, well, I hope we did. Otherwise it's going to be awkward. Um, but I, I think that, I think that we, we did a really good job of, of, Finding the parts of me that were useful to the business and codifying them and taking the parts of me that weren't, which were many, and leaving them with me. And, you know, now I'm taking those with me and hopefully it'll be a better place for that. You know? uh-huh. So, yes or no, should one be doing? I mean, Matt Brown Show, Digital Kung Fu, it's in the same camera shots. It's pretty much yeah. the two brands go together. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, is the, is, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because there's different viewpoints on it. I think when you're a startup, absolutely, you, there's no question you have to do it if you get to scale. No, I, I disagree. Do you not really? Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I don't know if we can we can just blanket say all startups should have people who are building personal brands. There might be a startup who's I met a, a young lady the other day the other day who's developing this incredible uh, uh, technology where she 3D prints um, essentially body parts. Uh, not real versions of them, fake versions of them that doctors can practice and rehearse procedures on so that they can, you know, download the spec for the operation they're going to do and practice in the office before, you know, as an example, that's, again, I probably don't understand the business properly, but I don't know if there's a need for her to be a personal brand. She could just build an amazing business, sell it, and nobody ever know her name, and that's fine. There's no rule that says you must do the thing. I think I think it can help a lot, and I think it can be a great way to accelerate your growth at the beginning and attract talent and get PR and all the, all the good things that are associated with that, and I think that's even more compelling in our industry. We've got to be careful that we don't apply the rules in our industry to every startup in every industry in the world. I think the kind of Silicon Valley uh, illusion, delusion about personal branding and maybe the marketing industry's illusion around branding, personal branding are not the world's reality. If you're building a mining business, I don't think you have to speak at conferences. Mm. You can still build an amazing business and, and do fine. Um, what I will say though is that I think the question around whether or not you should build a personal brand has got more to do with who you are and whether or not you gravitate towards that kind of thing than, because uh, I think people who are not in some way, shape, or form, naturally predisposed to doing what we're doing now, will find that a very difficult, painful, time-wasting activity in much the same way that while I could have done a an advanced course in business finance, it would have been a very painful experience for me. It was much better for me to hire a really good FD. Exactly the same thing for me. Yeah. Rather than try and be a CA. I will never be a CA. There's no part of this here that is a CA. Like none none of it. Not even the clap that up. The, <laughs> not even the, the tiniest piece of yeah. You heard it first in the Map Brown show. <laughs> no, no, but I think it's important here. because um I guess any everybody should be doing this. I have big red flags around. Um, yeah. for that no, I, mean, I, I, this why this is part of the reason why I do the show is to get to the truth. So, for me, I found that before I when I wasn't building my personal brand, 
um, it, it only moved the needle so much. And the moment that it was Matt Brown front and center, the whole game changed. When we rebranded from Digital Kung Fu Show to the Matt Brown Show, thanks to all Richie there, um, it like 10x'd my audience. Um, I started speaking more. I started to get into more rooms, shake more hands with the markets that I was trying to reach. You know, it's 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 hard to say that you shouldn't do it. Um, okay, but, that but, could but, I, be... but, but I do agree with you, though, in the sense of that it's, it comes down to who you are. That I agree with 100%. Um, in the sense of, like, I am just, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I'm happy to be, you know, in front of cameras all day long. Um, I wasn't, though, having said that. I was actually an introvert, still am in many respects. I don't, I used to, remember the first interview that I did with you, you were, I think, I think still in Joburg, <clears throat> but we did it over Skype because I didn't want to have a face-to-face chat with Mike Stockforth from Cerebra. I had massive imposter syndrome, right? I didn't like meeting strangers. I'm still like, I don't generally like people <laughs> uh, to a lesser or larger degree. Except you know? for you guys, you guys Except are amazing. You guys. But, um, but no, I'm serious, but that, that's how I am. But I had to unlearn that shit. Um, and thank God I did because, you know, it wouldn't, we, the business wouldn't be where it is. It just, it would have definitely failed, you know? So, sure. so that's just my experience, you know? Yeah. But I think it's important to contextualize within that the fact that you are building a business that does this and you're in an industry that is defined largely by the personalities in it. And pod- podcasting works well when it has personality. Those are all three factors that might not be the same in any other industry or space that could have been quite unique to your, but if you ask, like, I know people who are starting up a new performance marketing business now. And if they ask me, you mean, and if they ask me if it was a good idea for them, I'd say absolutely, but it's contextual to the industry that they're in and the time that they're doing that. Yeah. You know I get you. I get you. Look, I mean, if you're selling 3d printed body parts, then probably not. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it would be amazing but, for a bit to, to, you know, you want to be published in a journal. Mm. You want to speak at the conference of 3d printed body parts that I've heard they're great. And you'd want to speak at those. Um, but no, so, so, I, I, <laughs> but I think there's a difference between, there's a difference between building a profile and building a, uh, building a, personal brand and then and then i think we need to acknowledge that there's a counterfactual to that where there are some people who we've never heard of that are making a ton of money in amazing industries and in businesses that are extremely profitable that have not even opened a twitter account and that's really cool and i've got to be okay with that this is mark keating from sales guru and i've been very fortunate to have worked with matt and his team from digital kung fu for the last several months i chose matt and his team to really tell my story as a speaker and looking also at sales guru's story as a sales training organization and probably the biggest thing outside of the amazing quality of their work is really the service that matt and his team go far beyond any expectations that i've had so far and I'd highly recommend them to any organization or individual looking for quality content and assistance. Let's do quote of the day. Let's do quote of the day. What's quote of the day? <laughs> so, Mike, take us through this one, bud. Yeah, so um, I think we spoke about this briefly earlier. I'm going to hold this other leg so it looks like we are closer together. Oh, yes. Um, happiness equals reality minus expectations. I usually... I, I thought it was actually happiness equals expectations minus reality. But uh, apparently when yeah. I just looked it up now, I'm trying to figure out, I, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe bod mass doesn't apply to, um, mm. to I think it uh, is quotes. expectations minus reality. Because 
The thing is, the thing about I it, swear, it, like I just checked on the website and it's that way around. I really? actually think Tim's well, wrong. I think it Tim should got, be expectations. Let's tweet reality. him. But Someone essentially, <laughs> what the quote, and it's been a useful quote. For, and in fact, this is the quote that that kind of comes up when I talk to clients about brands and mm. how people have an expectation and then they experience the reality of that. And the difference between those two is their level of happiness, right? Mm. Um, I expect Escom to be catastrophically shit at what they do. So when they are catastrophically shit, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm fair happy. enough. But <laughs> if if somebody that I love and admire, if I like, I, you know, if something goes wrong at Woolies, as an example, I feel instantly upset and offended and hurt because I love Woolies, right? And 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 the 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 interesting part about that is that Woolies could have delivered an eight out of ten experience. And Escom could have delivered a two out of ten experience, and I'm more unhappy with Woolies just because of where my expectations were, right? Mm. But I think this applies to people, and it applies to that value equation we were talking about earlier on. It's a really great quote, and it's from a great blog. Wait, but why? Which people should read. Yeah, everyone um, should uh, check out the AI yeah. piece on that. It's mind blowing, yeah. Yeah, pretty much everything that Tim puts on there is is mind blowing. Mm. He's a he's a smart cat, eh? Yeah, he's a genius. Yeah, I love that guy. But he hasn't posted anything for a while, hey? I I've seen that. I don't know why that is. Maybe he's just super busy. Same actually for for the the other guy, the oatmeal guy. Haven't mm. seen a lot of oatmeal stuff in a while. So Mm-mm. those are the two. Those are the two kind of really great individual contributors and mind shifters i think mm. out there they're doing some cool work huh? yeah well there are many but i mean those are the two that i respond to yeah got you let's play a game let's play a game i love a game let's play a game of what are we playing it's not even my show anymore yeah not really here um so this game we're playing is called the improbability challenge so what's going to happen is i'm going to hold up some cue cards for you guys and you're going to improvise the emotion or action on the cue cards into the conversation that you're already having I'm I'm excellent at improv, so this should, I'm terrible at improv. I just, I this hate this improv. feels to me like toast. Was it toast makers? Toast masters. Masters. Yeah. 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 So this is more like this is really toast average. Like, <laughs> toast amateurs. <coughs> average yeah. toasters. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, so cool. So you guys do you carry on with your conversation? Okay. We'll hold up some cue cards. Okay. What about our listeners? They won't know. What do you must we tell them what it is? Or you tell them what it is, Chris? Okay. Cool. All right. Good. So first we have. Fishing for compliments. Good. Engage. So, this tattoo took 30 hours here. Yeah? Okay. To make, yeah. Cool. I uh, would like to talk in more detail about why that was so important for you to tell me. And the reason why is because I think that I, you know, I have tried my very best to be as conscious and humble as a business leader. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if you've experienced that, but but it is something that's really important to me. Yeah, it's important to me too. You know, that's why I do the show because I mean, that's why you're here, really, mm-hmm. is because you know this show makes such a huge difference to entrepreneurs around the world. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, number one in you know management and marketing, thirteen times. You know, that's that's an extraordinary statistic. Mm. Um, I've been studying. Uh, a master's degree. Oh, have you? Uh, and we've 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 touched on statistics. Yeah, I find briefly, experience much more you know much more valuable yeah. than any theoretical yeah. bullshit. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I imagine your three that's years why we, of experience is <laughs> hugely valuable. But I. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Only, only excited. Okay. Oh my god! I'm just. Literally can't even express how excited I am to be here with you, Matt, talking about experience 
and subtly mocking some of the things that you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, you know what I'm most thrilled about is when you're going to leave here. You don't you know? seem thrilled at all. That's, that's sarcasm. <laughs> that's the wrong fucking emotion. That's, that's overly sarcastic. I feel like you misread that one you, a little you're bit. You're right, you're right. How do you do excited without saying excited? Anyway. I think that's constipated. I'm in physical bowel... Yeah. Oh my God! What should you want to just mean? Well, yeah, we're we're moving on to overly dramatic now. Okay. <laughs> oh my God! Did you see the traffic coming in here today? I feel like we had to make this relevant to our discussion. You're, right, you're not like, acknowledging okay, okay. the importance right, of right. our discussion. This is my first time. Well, I'm dude. offended. I'm triggered by the fact <laughs> I, that just, you I'm really upset don't right now. see how important this conversation. God damn and the conversation it, we were on earlier. On. Is it that like what I was saying wasn't important enough for dude, you? You just don't is listen. It? You know, <laughs> I just don't feel like you appreciate me. You know what I mean? And this I think appreciate like every day on Twitter. <laughs> 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 we brought Twitter trolls yeah. into the studio. Yay. Okay, cool. Well done. That's cool. it. <laughs> well done, Good guys. game. That was fun. Ring the bell. Cool. Play um, with the ball. Good. So, so, <laughs> so um, let's. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about like social media, if you don't mind. Obviously, it's part of our narrative here today. But um, like, is it still what it's all cracked up to be? I mean, I'm looking at... What is it cracked up to be? Well, look, I'll, I'll say this. Um, there, were, there was this movement in this massive pursuit of vanity metrics like likes. So how many people can, you know, can we get on our page? <clears throat> and then obviously Facebook changed the algorithm and obviously geared towards spend. So if you want to reach, you know, a thousand of those 10,000 people, well then, you know, don't spend anything. Maybe it's 1% of the 100% today. But, um, but I just find as a content producer... I think the underlying economics have caused content producers to start to look elsewhere. Okay. Why must I pay any money to reach audience? In other words, I paid money to build my audience. Now I must pay to reach them again. Mm. Yeah. So look, I think there's two ways to, to talk about social media, two meaningful ways. One is as a, as a business, how do I think um, about what's changed in social media and how that changes my strategy towards it? And I think, from a business perspective, it would be fair to say that social media, and I'm going to kind of blanket all of these platforms, and we can't really because they are very different. They've all got different strategies. But let, let's talk about kind of Facebook and Instagram as the, the one little – and maybe Twitter. We can lump in with that and say these guys, I think, are under duress to start demonstrating real value to brands that have invested an enormous amount of money with them. Part of that is around – the negative press that they've received around business conduct and privacy and data. And part of that, I think, is that the, the, they're scrambling to, to adapt to, uh, brands requirements by modifying the conditions of the engagement is eroding trust in the process. And I mean, there's a, there's a deep seated irony in that, you know, these are, these are the, these platforms. 10 years ago, we're going to change the way we communicated fundamentally forever. And I'd argue that they have, certainly from an individual perspective. But because there was this enormous pressure, this kind of, what do they call it? Struggle porn, uh, growth, uh, not struggle porn. It is called, no, it's, what? That's, that's the name of my next company, struggle porn. <laughs> no, 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 it's a real thing. Like, uh, it, uh, maybe I'm getting the wrong, but it's this kind of this, it's the Gary V. Oh my God, it's so hard. Like, and you just got to strike. I'm, I'm getting this wrong, aren't I? Yeah. 
What are you talking no, 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 about? I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. I'm probably wrong. But what maybe look that up quickly. It's this, this kind of okay. It's the can, criticism. So hang on, okay. Mav's getting it up here. Struggle porn. Just Definitely bring it up on the screen. Porn. No, no more struggle, more struggle porn. porn. I'm right. Just ah. click on that. Open that okay. up. So it is a movement of no more anti-Silicon Valley growth at all costs, scale at all costs. You know, work yourself to death. Uh, like work your staff to death because we've just got to get the critical mass and if we get the critical mass then we'll get the funny if we get series C then we'll get this or whatever. and then at the end you're like oh, why am I in a senate hearing Be- you know like so, so I think I think <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I planned well you could see that on his funny. face <laughs> he's like how did I get struggle here? porn um, first so, sentence I don't like Gary V. No, well, it's not about Gary. I think I'm I sure know, he's a very know, nice guy and he supports Spurs and that's all that really matters. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so I think, you know, there's a sense of irony that social media networks had this promise of being fundamentally disruptive to the way that brands engage with consumers and everything else and arguably should have broken advertising and all of the things that were wrong with advertising. But the, the pressure to deliver value to shareholders led them to the lowest hanging fruit possible. And what was that? Ads on my stuff. That's mm. the lowest hanging fruit possible, right? Like it might have been better to charge me for the responsibility of having an audience. Imagine if Twitter said for every thousand users, real users, you broadcast to every month, we're going to charge you a dollar. You pay a subscription for your audience, the privilege of publishing, right? Nobody would have bought that from a shareholder value perspective. It wouldn't have grown it, but what might it have meant to the sustainability and meaningfulness and usefulness of the platform, the level of responsibility people applied to it. I don't know. It might have been interesting. Maybe if we forced brands to pay a fee to have a a brand authenticated branded presence on social media networks and funded them that way. That might have been an interesting but what we did was we served ads. Okay. And that has has compelled us to find better ways to serve ads, which compromises you might argue the efficacy of what it means to be a social network, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the one part of it. The second part is what it's meant to people, right? So, so you and me and, and our families and our communities and the things we believe in and whatever. And I think that's been monumental as well, because again, social media doesn't, does very little to reward thoughtful, considered, deliberate, measured debate and conversation. What it rewards is shit fuckery like and the worst versions of it like we we give the lunatic fringes 95 percent of the airtime on these platforms and the media is not helping either but again the media is i had this argument with sipo klongwana yesterday on on twitter it, he felt like i was having to go at news media just bring that up <laughs> no no well, i think he, he felt like i was having to go at news media and i wasn't having to go at news media i was actually having to go at the readership us and our our absolute obsession with bad news and declinism and our our we 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 have this horrible disposition towards the things that are most vitriolic and most destructive. And we give those things the biggest rewards on, on social media, you know? So I, you know, I think we've but got, we don't have a fucking choice, Mike. Of course we have a choice. No, we don't. Has a choice. I think it's the illusion of choice because if you think about it, you've got, what is it? Oh, turn, you can close your accounts and not use social media. That's, that's so a choice. If it, I saw this thing on Twitter the other day. I can't remember who posted it, but basically, um, it was the seven, it's uh, under the one about you scroll down a little. Are we bit. just looking at? Uh, oh no, no, scroll Mike's up a bit. Mike's Twitter page, you're trying to bring up what was going there on. There we go. That post there about fuel price goes up. South Africa, yeah, cool. And then I think there's a comment. There we go. The first comment. Oh no. Oh yes, it is. Yeah. 
What did you say? Just well, I was talking about the fuel price and saying that, you know, when the fuel price goes down, then we have all sorts of negativity and South Africa's going over a cliff and I said that we're, we're biologically and socially disposed, disposed, we being the audience and users, to bad news and declinism and our media salivate over it. In other words, that's the way they sell clicks and whatever. CPOR felt like I was having a go at news media uh, and then we had a little bit of a mm. parlay. Well, this as, is exactly what I'm talking about. You, you don't. So, so. We'll but take, it was a good part. At least you know, Sipo and I. It, what's interesting is yesterday I was having a, 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 a an argument with both Roman from the Renegade Report and Sipo from Daily Vox. I mean, these are two guys that are probably you know kind of on different ends of the political spectrum from an opinion perspective. But I think what I love about both of those people is we can have a debate and not have to get personal or unpleasant or ad hominem attacks on each other. You know, I, I can disagree with somebody and actually still respect them. Imagine that. Um, no, in fact, I think that's my pinned tweet on my profiles. Like, imagine that. Imagine two people had a conversation on Twitter, disagreed with each other, and still were nice. Like, huh? Well, congratulations. Because, geez. No, 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 it's not me. I mean, it takes, no. it takes two to tango, right? It but does. And, but the thing is, so just on the, on the media piece, it's no, like... We shouldn't be looking at my Twitter account. That could be bad. <laughs> but I mean, if you think about just like the... You, you're saying here that, you know, we're socially and biologically, biologically disposed to basically crap media, news media that's negative and whatever, and so on and so forth. But also when I say that we don't have a choice, the context is important, right? So like you talk about tensions... For me, context is a manifestation of attention in the sense of if you have uh, a business model that no longer fucking works, right, and you're competing with the proliferation of news and information, and the only way that you can compete is to be link-baity, is to be sensational, is to be fake newsy, and so on and so forth. And that's really what's dominating media, right? So so I agree with you with what you've said. It's okay, just but there I, are counterfactuals I, to what you're saying. Is there? There's things like the Daily Maverick. There's the work yes, that Amabungani yeah, is doing. There's Quillette, which but there's, is but a, there's always there's always counter arguments kind of a libertarian and piece that's But I'm here. saying on the whole, yeah, like Facebook. I don't know what to trust on Facebook. Do you? Uh, you, you need no, to. No, I don't. You don't. And the, but, and but the average person doesn't either. I just don't trust anything. But that also comes from being deliberate about uh, about how you think about content. You know. Mm. So so. Again, it's one of those, it's the lost art of critical thinking, right? Like I see the thing on the page. It makes me feel good. Red flag goes up. If it makes me feel good, I've got to be careful of it because it's probably enforcing some bias or worldview that I've inherited or established over time. Like we, and we are, we are like creatures of, we are such hedonists, right? Like if it makes me feel good, then I'd retweet it. If it makes me feel bad, then I just block it. Like yeah. just, bleh, it's go like away, if struggle know? porn makes you feel good, you need to really think about that. Yeah, as an example. <laughs> because life's sort actually, of, you know, all yeah. roses in a box of chocolates. That's what I think. Yeah. No, but I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a different topic around the, that whole struggle thing. I mean, that's an interesting thing. Well, let's talk I about think, it. Struggle porn. I've got a real problem with the way that Silicon Valley tells us we should build businesses. I think it's very applicable to that context, and I think it's very destructive in other ones. Um, and I think this idea of the only way you can build a business is if you get funding – and the only way to make that business sustainable is to get critical mass. And that the only way you can do that is pre-revenue with massive injections of cash. And that the only way to make it last afterwards is an IPO. And that the only way to run it after that is to treat staff like shit. That's a problem. Like that's, that's, that's an issue for me. I mean, this idea of building a privately owned business from scratch and really working hard and, and carving out one or two clients. And then that's not sexy at all. Nobody's writing books about that at all. And yet 
we see time and time again examples of businesses that have gone that approach and 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 are lasting and aren't having to compromise their values and beliefs and standards that they're growing slower their owners are probably not making billions and billions of dollars but i think that kind of growth there's a big price that comes with it that that kind of size of organization you can no longer really be accountable for all of it. i mean there's stuff that happened in your happens in businesses of that size that you you can't even control anymore you're not even aware of it almost takes on a life of its own and you're subject to it i mean I, like i think that's what happened to mark zuckerberg is he had this incredible breakthrough made frankenstein's monster and is like face facebook's dying uh, and is like oh, what do i do now what, what like you just keep going because what else do you do you can't just stop which raises the question about what does a sustainable business look like right so <clears throat> so so if you think about keeping it within the social media space facebook etc you know, to your point, Facebook connected the world, you know, still in the process of doing that job. Um, and yet with all the crap that's come out of, uh, that particular fair, fair you know, platform data, blah, 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 et cetera, you know, policy and like misinformation and the effect that it has on governments and destabilization of emerging economies. Like there's just, there's a never ending pile of shit that's coming out of Facebook. It's almost. Well, I think it's, 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 it's also been used as a scapegoat for a lot of other stuff. That's a problem that, that we, they're an easy target. So mm. in their defense, they're, yeah. they do a lot of great work as well. You know? Yeah, they do. They do. I'm just, you know, but that, that's what people see. That's what yeah. they hear. Um, so ethically then, I mean, you're off to the London School of Economics to do this uh, course around, was it ethics, um, sustainability business? What is it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a course that is kind of touted as the conscious alternative to an MBA. That that's not my that's not my vision. That's their vision. They they they're saying that a lot of what seems to be unsustainable in business today is built on a narrative that was defined by business schools in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, and and that was again contextual to that time and worked really well. And people have built an extraordinary amount of of wealth on top of that. But maybe that narrative has got some holes in it. Maybe there are some parts of that model that need interrogating. And maybe we need to find ways of looking at the successes and failures of the state. The successes and failures of the third sector, NGOs, nonprofits, and the, the, the successes and failures of capital markets, you know, um, uh, market-based businesses like ours and go, well, what can we learn from those organizations? And, and how do we develop better models, maybe hybridized models that deliver more sustainable solutions and, and hopefully improve? Now the world is, is, objectively better today than it's ever been before but we still have some very big problems like some really serious issues that that need attending to and they need attending to because as an entrepreneur my wealth and my success my relative success means nothing if like the world goes up in smoke or my country goes up in smoke or my yeah, family's not safe you know yeah so i mean the, those are those are really important things even if you are super wealthy and you've benefited from it. but i mean there's a lot of people obviously that are not and have not benefited. And, um, so we're asking some tough questions in the, in the course around what is working and what isn't working and what we might be missing because of our, our respective perspectives on things, you know. So I will be much more forgiving of, of, you know, kind of market based businesses because that's the world I come from. And my whole universe has been defined by that way of thinking, but maybe I need to be thinking critically about it as well. And I believe that whatever I do next will be far more considered and deliberate and, and, more meaningful because of that thinking, you know? Yeah. What does a marketplace business look it's, like? It's a, it's a business that declares a profit. 
to okay. shareholders. That's that's a market business. So, in other words, any organization that has declares a residual and that residual is shared amongst shareholders is is a a market business. What do you say to yeah, the, the Milton Friedman, Joseph Schumpeter style of capitalism? Got it. Got it. Um, what do you say to the entrepreneur who has a choice between scaling up and buying into the Silicon Valley narrative? And I wholeheartedly agree with you um, that it's not all it's cracked up to be um, versus the guy who, you know, potentially just wants to have a business for 15 years and, you know, not work for anyone because he's unemployable like you and me. <laughs> what I would say to, uh, so what I would say to the guy who wants yeah, to what scale, would you say? Like, great well, scale. Yeah. Know why you're scaling. Like that's the first thing is, Know why it's important to you that you do that. Know what it'll know what it will mean for you when you achieve that. Don't scale for scale's sake. Scale because it's what will make you fulfilled and happy and uh, give you the conditions for success that you've defined for yourself. If those are enormous amounts of money and fame, then great, then do that. Like, and that's amazing, and I applaud you, and and that's incredible. But if if I think it's when, when we're trying to apply a business model that we've read in a book somewhere or in a series of articles or on the Harvard Business Review that is counter to our set of values and the context we're in and the type of things that our customers actually want, that we really run into trouble, that we really struggle, right? And the, the truth is that if, unless you are there, unless you're sitting in the Bay Area building some tech platform that has got great engineers behind it and a unique business model and you're applying to get into Y Combinator and Founder Collective is going to be excited about it. It is catastrophically difficult to do that in any other place in the world, mm. with the exception maybe of Austin, Colorado, maybe London, Dublin, maybe Dubai, perhaps Singapore, maybe. That's it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm neglecting the entire East, but that's because I don't know about it and I'm not yeah. qualified to speak about it. So. No, I got you. Not Perth. Perth probably not at all. Well, no, maybe. I mean, again, I don't, <laughs> I don't know much about Australian economics, but I do know that, that it's a very structured environment and being a very structured environment. Um, there's, there's, and this is the, the, what friends of mine who have moved there have said to me, entrepreneurial friends is that the way Australia is designed is that there's almost kind of like a predisposed allocation for this is how many entrepreneurs we feel are welcome in this particular context and economy. And if you don't fit into that plan, then it's going to be very difficult for you to do. It's not really kind of free market capitalism. It's a little bit more nanny statish and a little bit more prescribed. But again, I'm speaking out of my ass here, so cool. don't quote me on Let's anything. do your knockout punch for entrepreneurs. What's the top tip, the thing that you feel entrepreneurs can apply in their businesses today that will move the needle for them? Cool. So I, I used to speak to my senior team a lot about this. This was this idea of what's the best use of my time, right? So it's maybe the, maybe the hardest question you can ask yourself as an entrepreneur and the thing that's maybe most important because time is the only really valuable resource you've got. And if you waste it, that, you know, that's, that's really detrimental to you and, and to your happiness and well-being. So the exercise we used to go through is if I only had two hours in a day, what would I spend them on? Okay. What would I do if I only had two hours? If I was only w allowed to work, you know, new conditions for the way the world works. You're only allowed two hours a day to work. The rest of the day, you're not allowed to engage in it at all. What would you do with those two hours? How would you split them up? Would you split them up into two two-hour meetings? Would you split them up into eight 15-minute engagements? Would you spend half of it writing and strategizing and the other half selling? What, what would you do? But decide what that is and know why you prioritize those things in the way that you did and then try and extrapolate that over 10 hours and see what happens to your business. What did you choose? 
I can't remember. I, I normally just tell people what to do and don't actually apply it to my own life. If you could not hold me accountable to the things I say, that would be amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, it- I would spend a half an hour selling a half an hour working with senior members of my team to develop their leadership skills and a half an hour interrogating processes within our business to ensure that they were optimal. Okay. Those, cool. th- those are good uses of my skill set and also things that I enjoy doing. Right. Good question though. Definitely helps your mind focus. I'd probably do selling. What would you do? Creative directing. <laughs> Checking in work what, and in shit. In what time portions? Because that's also important. Uh, um, I'd probably do so an hour of sales. Yeah, an hour of sales. Promote, like chasing up on leads, drumming up business, stuff like that. So I'd probably spend 30 minutes uh, doing creative directive work sort of thing. And then the other 30 minutes, probably doing something where I'm learning. Cool. Mm. Forgot about the learning part. Yeah, learning's important. Hi, I'm Craig Collins, the CEO of Cradle Technology and the developers of Granite Wells Management. Working with the Digital Kung Fu team and Matt Brown has been amazing. Um, their responsiveness is just brilliant. They always get back to you so quickly and the quality of their output is brilliant. So really enjoying working with them and really enjoying what we're doing and going forward. I think we've got a great future. So let's talk about your Injustice League. So um, the guys will get uh, set up. We're going to ask you to swing a baseball bat, smash them shits. Uh, <laughs> Mike's face. But, uh, but yeah, what is, what is uh, the one injustice that you see in the world that you feel really needs to be solved? I, um, I care a lot about education. I know everybody says that, but I, I have a mom who's an educator who's worked in the same inner city public school for over 35 years. My aunt's done the same, same school. They're like part of the furniture there. Um, I have, I have many teachers in my life and I, I watch how important their work is and how much it means to the children that they, they connect with and, and who they help foster through that stage of their life. And, like, I think it's catastrophic how badly we pay teachers to do what they do. Um, if you consider how important the work is and how much of it, like purely from a financial perspective, how much impact that has on our businesses later on, like bad education, right? It, the cost to economies is astonishing. And that means the direct cost to me as an entrepreneur mm. is astonishing and terrifying. Mm. So if it, it, you know, if it were up to me, we would prioritize everything around how much we pay teachers and nurses basically um okay and yeah that's a huge injustice i think great stuff so we've got this this here box uh which has been labeled as such you'll read that out for us this box says that the average teacher earns nine thousand five hundred rand per month is there nine thousand five hundred rand in the box uh there might be the only way to find out is if you smash that to smithereens okay so you can put your mic down uh, you can select any of our autographed uh, baseball bats here <laughs> And uh, just on behalf of, <clears throat> no, don't worry, don't be shy. Um, and so, just on behalf of all underpaid teachers around the world, this is like a, like a great example of selectivism. Hey, hey, hit the box; it's all fixed now. Good. <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> Legit. Woo! That was amazing. That was fantastic. Cool, buddy. Here you go. Um, cool. So thanks for that, man. I feel that was strongly really great. About That'll that. be an, an amazing segment on our highlights. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you see, so. we've been uh, stitching them, uh, stitching them all together um, for some for like a huge marketing push for the for the show in, in next year. It's yeah. been hilarious. We have got like ninety. Can imagine. Abject violence. Yeah. So, um, so shall we play a game? Should we play the the word? What is this? The word game. 
Yeah, and then I want to talk to you about your exits and what entrepreneurs can learn cool. from your experience. So, what's this game all about? Cool, guys. Uh, so, this game is called uh, the Lip Read Challenge. So, what's going to happen is we're going to give you um, some headphones, and Matt's going to ask you uh, to repeat some phrases. Mm. Basically, the challenge is to read his lips. Um, you guys will have two different categories each, and uh, you'll swap headphones afterwards. Good. Yeah. Sounds easy. And the words are from. What if Matt can't him, enunciate? Eh? What if, like, dude, I this is my I haven't won a single game yet. I've always lost. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, okay, you're the favorite. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, I'm gonna cool. deliberately gonna go speak first. badly. Uh, so so the categories. This oh, says like Matt on it though. Is this what I'm asking, Mike? Okay. So okay. the categories are for Matt. It's going to be Christmas themed things. Yeah. And then for you, Mike, it's going to be related to social media. So he's oh, great. Thanks, guys. He's gonna <laughs> ask me. Is that because I'm a guru? Uh, he's gonna ask me stuff, and then I've got to try and answer the question based on what no, I. No, no, it's not a question. You have to repeat what he's. Uh, just the phrase. Just the okay. phrase. Okay. Yeah, like, okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay. Cool. This is super exciting. <laughs> okay. Is the music on? So it's like their music they play in like a really bad massage salon. <laughs> Not that I would know, but I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, ready? Here we go. One. Selfie. I can hear him. Can you? Oh, you fucking He might have cheater. said selfie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Jack that volume. Okay, that's horrible. I can even hear it. <laughs> okay. Comments. Comments section. <laughs> Complexes. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you go. Clickbait. Uh, clickbait. Uh huh. Okay. Hey. Woo. Okay, that's one. How many has he got? One. Because right, the other one didn't count. Eh? Okay, here we go. Facebook. Facebook. Oh, fuck, guys. This is going to kill me on the point score here. <laughs> Mike, over here. <laughs> Sorry, I keep seeing the thing, man. Share my post. Cheryl Crow. <laughs> No, that's it. Okay, you got two. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's go. I'm a pro. Okay, my uh, turn. Oh, yeah, of course. Here we go. Okay. Okay. While Mav works out how to move around the studio. Okay. Okay. Are you ready, Matt? Okay, no music. Okay. It's a Wix advert, Ed. Okay, go. Okay. Wait, hold on. It's your first Turn clue, Matt. Turn it up. I can hear him. This is your first clue. I can still hear him. Okay, there you go. Well, I just want to say no, it. Okay, go. Okay, cool. Uh, two words. Sounds like. Yeah. Huh? No. He's the worst enunciator. I just realized. Huh? It's Jingle Bells. No, I'm gone. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to fuck a fail at this again. <laughs> Jingle bells. Oh, it's Christmas shit. Okay, fine. Jesus, guys. That's really difficult. I lost my elf. Where is my elf? It's really good. I give my elf a point. Was it close? Yeah, very close. I lost my elf. <laughs> my son will be devastated. Christmas tree. Christmas tree. Easy. <laughs> Easy as. Santa's sleigh. Santa's dead. Yes. <laughs> uh, Santa's sleigh. 
Now, now your kid will really be upset. There's no Christmas presents yeah. for anyone. Oh, this year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He got confused with the other task. <laughs> Look excited about yeah, something. This one's yeah. the tired. Saturday, right? yes. Fucking yeah. competitive. It's holiday time. It's holiday time. I'm so much better yeah. at enunciating. That's why you won. Was that right? Yeah. Did I win that one? Yeah. Woo! It's because I can English. Finally. Fuck. Okay. Jeez, it feels good. Winning team. Right. That's <laughs> because you asked me about stuff I know nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about your exit to WPP. Why did you do it? Um, so a couple of reasons. I think the first reason was that it was good timing. I, I think the having having finished my official earnout uh, a, a year ago, the I felt like the business was in a really good place. I felt like it was um, super sustainable. We've got incredible clients that are really happy with where we're at. They didn't feel like there were any. Um. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's there's a really good word for this. Imminent, imminent threats. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got this unbelievable senior management team. They really are really really good. Um, in many respects, so much better at doing the work that they do than than I am. And so when I kind of added all those things together, there was a sense that the amount of time that I was spending in Cerebra and working on Cerebra was was probably less valuable to Cerebra now than it might have been three or four years ago. And that I'm, I'm really interested in creating space for leadership to kind of move up the pipe and for, I, I, you, hopefully you would have picked up already from our conversations that I'm really committed to the notion of transformation, not just as an issue of compliance, but as an issue of intention. Um, and you can only really do that when you get out the way. You can only really see a business um, transform when you create space for it to happen. So, so that all those things added together, um, I didn't really foresee that I would, um, I, like, I, I'm not hugely ambitious around working my way up the corporate ladder. And I, I've really enjoyed working with WPP as a business, genuinely. I've learned an absolute ton. I've learned fortune. It's an incredible network for people who are willing to leverage it for its best characteristics. Like it's extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily powerful. But I didn't really foresee like a massive, like I don't have ambitions to be Mark Reed, you know? So, so that was the, and then the other part was just being passionate about a a number of topics and the kind of place I'm in right now where I wanted to create space to explore those. And those might be abject failures left, right and center, but I, I want to try and, um, and we'll see what comes of that. But yeah, largely feeling comfortable that I was leaving a business that was healthy and, and thriving. Mm. And, and then also, you know, wanting to explore opportunities to add value in other spaces. If there were three things that you learned in the process, you said it was like a, you know, finance, blah, blah, you know, sort of just fast track degree sort of thing. There were three things that you would do differently. Mm, okay. How would you design your business? What would you have done differently in terms of Cerebra in order Specifically to, in terms of the deal? The deal value itself, yeah. So if you wanted, if you went from like a 5X multiple to get it to like a, I know it's all industry dependent, et cetera, but like if you were to gear the value through just maybe, you know, getting contracts done properly or, you know, whatever the case is, like what were three things that you just, yeah. you know, look back and going, shit, I really wish I'd done that. Yeah, so I guess some of these are quite personal, um, but I, I probably would have spent more time understanding all the terms and levers in a negotiation like that. Obviously, any business deal is a very complicated thing and very, as you said, kind of subject to the nuances of the industry you're talking about and the relationship between those people. It's, it's remarkable how much 
kind of guesswork and emotion goes into these things. Like, I guess we would always think that something like that would be purely analytical and there's a number and we are, you go high five on the number and then somebody pays money into your bank account, you know, but it's really like the amount of emotional variables in the mix and, and the definitions around the value of things like brand and goodwill and reputation are, are very difficult to kind of settle on. So I think I say I would have known the terms of the negotiation better and I would have known what it meant to do a good deal before going into those negotiations. So never been a particularly good negotiator, but I, I think I learned through that process the importance of that. The next thing I would have changed about the deal is that I would have worked harder to get into people's faces. Like I I always assume that if you just do good work, people will come to you and go, hey, well done, good work. And uh, do you want some more work? Um, but I realized that in a in a business like that, and I think in any corporate, and anybody who works in a corporate will know this, is you really have to go out there and, and be political and mix and introduce yourself to everyone and network. And um, you, you do as much internal selling as you do external selling. And that's really important. When you get that right in a business like WPP and there's guys in South Africa who have, um, geez, you can do really, really well. Um, and I, I'm not particularly good at that. So I needed to learn that. And the third thing I would suggest for guys that have done a deal is don't spend any of your money for the first six months after doing the deal. I think I spent all of mine in the first six months after doing the deal, but I, <laughs> um, I think it's really important to, to evaluate the way that you approach your thinking about value and about investment and about stuff. Once you have the ability to get it, like again, it's that thing earlier on around your characters, what you do with power. I went through a midlife crisis. I think I bought like a convertible car and like, like idiotic things, you know? Um, and those are cool, but the point I'm trying to make is that money does have an impact on the way you see the world and the way you see yourself. And it's worth creating some space before you act on that so that mm. you can do so smartly when you do. Okay. Mav, can I have my phone, please, dude? Um, so basically before the show, um, obviously because we just have loads of mutual friends and stuff like that. Um, I reached out to our mutual network and I asked them oh, to. Three guys. Yeah, I know. Fuck six, Sam. Um, is um, is to basically ask some questions <clears throat> to to you. Uh, some of which they felt they hadn't asked before. Okay. Um. So let me just get this up here. Sorry about this, mate. Give me a minute. That's okay. That's okay. Um, email's hard. Email's fucking hard, eh? Where is this damn thing? Anyway, so can you get my laptop up here and I'll just ask some more questions. So, so yeah, um, but let's talk about WPP. Where you, it's kind of like you've got this massive agency network and little old Cerebra. How did you, or what did you learn in the process of um, engaging with a major network like that? I mean, what negotiation tips do you have for entrepreneurs who potentially are looking to sell out and negotiate a higher valuation? Yeah, so I mean, I think a couple of things. You you want to you want to make sure that what you're building fits somewhere into their picture, right? So if it's a an agency network that's extremely passionate about acquiring digital assets in a specific market, um, then you want to make sure that you're positioned as one of the leaders there. And 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 things like awards and PR count a lot more than I'd like to admit that they do when it comes to that stuff. But you know that is the nature of our industry, and so that does count for a lot. Um, you know, don't, don't be afraid to reach out to 
key thinkers and leaders in, in the network to ask for advice or even agency owners that have already been through that process to, to get their stories. And you, we tend to be quite insular and in, in, it's so weird. We don't speak to each other as agency owners. We just hire each other's staff. Uh, you know, yeah, it's go- like as weird as there's only one agency. They just have different names, <laughs> <laughs> different, different owners at any given point in yeah. time. Um, go, go and speak to those guys and kind of share war stories. And, and, and yeah, we need to do a much better job, I think, as ad agencies in South Africa of collaborating rather than, purely competing it's not like there's a limit of opportunity mm. and um yeah so that, that those would be some of the thoughts i guess um but yeah i mean any any corporate like wpp any big holding company is going to inherently bring with it a, a ton of lessons about how to operate in that kind of context and uh i mean i you, i always believed that cerebral would be my sandbox business it would be the business that taught me the really tough lessons and it really did and um i wouldn't change that part for the world i mean people often ask me that would you sell uh, knowing what you know now, and I would sell a million times over. Um, and it's not got to do with the money; it's got to do with what I learned in the process. Mm. Cool. So these questions are first ones from Rich Mulholland, uh, founder of Missing Link and Talkdraw. Do you believe that the mega agency acquiring everyone idea has been good or bad for the industry as a whole? Mm. I think, like most things, it's been good and bad for the industry. Um, it certainly has its its disadvantages in that uh, it. Um, when when creative agencies get acquired and they've got really creative leaders at the forefront, often those guys are incentivized in the wrong way, purely around kind of earnings over that period and not really around value creation. And then when it gets to the end of the period, they leave and those businesses fail. And that's sad, not only because there's great businesses that fail, but there's great talent that leaves. My one big criticism of WPP is that I'd love to see how they look after their entrepreneurs better. And not not from a financial perspective. They do fine there. But look after them in terms of connecting them and fulfilling them and um, empowering them and educating them. That's really important. So those are the softer issues, but I think they matter. Um, how has it been bad? Uh, so how has it been good, rather? Because I suppose that was more about how it's been bad. Um, how has it been good? It's, I think it's it's professionalized and formalized, an industry that was – you know, if we look at the Mad Men story of of the 1950s and 1960s, we might even argue that that advertising would have failed dismally if not for um, the intervention of people who were more commercially minded and more um, astute. Um, so yeah, so I, I, a lot of that is around the impact of uh, Martin Sorrell as an individual on the industry, and I think it's an enormous impact. I think t- you cannot understate the. I mean, it's hard to imagine another industry where a single person has had that much of an influence. You know, I, I'm not even sure you could say the same about Bill Gates and tech. Like, it's it's that big and that dominant um, a role. Um, and and so, you know, I'm I'm very interested to see, and I would suggest that agency owners keep a close eye on what he's doing next. And that's not because I have any, any commentary on the man himself. It's just that he's proven that he has the ability to spot interesting triggers and interesting levers in the world of advertising and marketing, that's well worth watching, you know? Cool. Um, this one's from Mike Sharman, uh, CEO yeah, of Retro and Mike next week, yeah. Cool. He said, um, what is the emotional bond like between you and Cerebra now? Hmm. Um, he's saying, for instance, there's no trace of your brand, <clears throat> sorry, Cerebra's brand bio on Twitter anymore. Um, so he says, how are you dealing with the divorce of your personal brand from your business brand? Yeah, so it's, that's a good question. I, I maybe don't know the answer yet because it's very early days, but I think, I think this is important. Like Cerebra is a, Cerebra is a, a couple of documents with subsidy and it's, it's a bank account. 
and maybe one or two contracts. That's that's what Cerebra is. Um, the 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 business of Cerebra is the people that I'm no longer working with, right? So that's the part I think I'll miss the most, and the part that will be hardest to, and already has proven to be really difficult to kind of come around on is is what does it mean not having those people in my life on a daily basis? I mean, a lot of them I'll maintain relationships with, and I really hope they want to do the same with me. But um, like it's more around it's more around missing working with those guys and seeing them succeed and seeing them fail and being a part of that and, and whatever. Uh, but Cerebra itself is a, is a business. It's a means to an end. It's a vehicle for stuff. Um, I have no emotional attachment to that registration number. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so this one's from Jason Levine. I don't know if you know him. <clears throat> so Jason says, <clears throat> what are the differences in the journey of a B2B services business versus a B2C startup offering? And <clears throat> could you just walk us through what's your what's your experience there? Yeah, so I mean, Jason, that's a that's a tough one for me to answer with absolute confidence because I'm not sure I've built both. I mean, Cerebro is a a weird business in that it was B two B focused in in its offering and service and 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 client base, but with a strong B two C disciplinary underpinning, right? So we had to understand what our clients meant to consumers and we had to facilitate a conversation between consumers and those clients to be meaningful and relevant in the industry. So so it was a bit of both. In a way, we were, so, you know, one of our community managers, Reese, uh, once said, it was genius when he said it, he said, like, I don't know who I work for here. Am I working for the community of the brand or am I working for the brand? Like who who am I actually advocating for here? And it was, it was both. You're doing both. You're, you're an advocate for both of these things. And that's, that's attention. It's another one of those great tensions, right? So, um, I think that, that, the one of the fundamental differences between the two is, is how, how you price. I think there's some really interesting stuff happening in the B2B price modeling, shared risk, approach that is 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 really fascinating and i think that's going to be an exciting place to watch over uh, kind of innovative financing models and innovative uh billing models i think we're going to see some changes there and i'm excited about that um you know, you know ult- ultimately our engagements with both you know business clients and individual clients comes down to the relationship you have with an individual almost every one of our big business to business accounts was a, as a was a relationship with an individual i've mentioned some of them already and and so I, I i i tend to think that the principles across both models are very similar when you focus on the value of individual relationships and the needs of that person and how your business meets their personal needs in the context of the broader business so yeah i mean it's it's probably an unsatisfactory answer jason and it's a great question but um yeah i think from from my perspective those are some of the key things are you looking to invest in any businesses Potentially, um, have been approached by and, and chatted to one or two people. Um, I don't know <laughs> how good I'd be as an investor or a board member. So I, I guess I would want to make sure I actually have some value to add. Um, but yeah, I'm certainly interested in, in projects and opportunities that are aligned with what I'm passionate about and what I care about and people who I think are committed to doing really, really cool stuff. Um, I'm more interested in working with entrepreneurs than I am investing in businesses. I know those are sometimes the same thing, but I'm really interested in working with entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are fascinating to me. Yeah, they are. Dude, last question. Yes. Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And I suppose it's interesting for you because you're wise. Normally my... One for such a long combination time. Combination of a toddler and a dashant. But, um, <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I don't. I don't know anything else. I. You were hoping for a much better answer to that. Well, Good luck. You were hoping for an this like raw, raw ending to the podcast, and Mike's like, I freaking don't know. Uh, generally strong coffee. Um, no, I like. I don't. I don't. I don't. This is going to sound a bit weird, but I like. Um, I don't believe in anything. I'm not a. I don't. What do you mean you don't believe in anything? I don't believe in a higher purpose or a vision or a. I believe I'm just a tiny speck of carbon huh. who was super lucky to land up on this planet at the time that I was and that in the absence of any third party meaning that's prescribed to me from some force, my job is to create meaning, right? So what gets up in the morning is the things, the opportunities that I have to create meaning and and that can be very, very subjective and it can be objective and that's one of those tensions. What is meaningful for the context that I'm in and what's meaningful for me. But ultimately that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in incredible experiences with incredible people that help me create a story around meaning. Yeah. Mike Starforth. See what I did there. I undersold the Indian and then delivered a fucking monster. Fucking monsters. Um, cool. Anyway, dude, this was great fun. It's been, uh, it's Thanks, been man. awesome. Thanks did for we just humoring interlock us. Fingers? We did. That was amazing. It was super <laughs> gay. Super gay. Good, good. Uh, but, uh, dude, seriously, man, uh, I think what you've built here is, is a great legacy. I think Manus Bretrek was also like, oh, you know, very few entrepreneurs leave a legacy. That's amazing. I barely know Manus. So it's really I know, nice dude, of but him, that's yeah. the, that's the, that's the impact, yeah. right? So you should be really proud and it's been really awesome to, to tell your story. And more, most importantly, I'm super excited to see where or what you'll do next. I think that's Thank you. Thanks for, I'm also quite excited to see that. And thanks for having me on the show and to you guys for all the hard work. Thanks, dudes. Cool. Yeah. Cheers. Clap cool. it up. This edition of the MapRound Show is brought to you by NetworkSpace.co.za. In fact, our studios are here in building number four at NetworkSpace up in Johannesburg. These guys have made us a huge deal, have really bent over backwards to give us the kind of service that most exciting businesses deserve. If you want more information about NetworkSpace, you can actually come and check out our studio. We are always open to meet new entrepreneurs and business owners from around the country, and you can do that right here at networkspace.coza. Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.